Good morning, church. It is such a privilege that we get to read God's word together. And I would like for you to join me in Exodus chapter 1. There's also a pew Bible in the rack in front of you if you would like to use that Bible. And it is on page 45. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of the Lord were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Good morning, church. It's really good to see you and be with you this morning, and I'm excited for this Sunday because we are launching into this new series in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, From Slavery to Glory. We're going to be going through the first section of Exodus, Exodus 1 to 15, uh, which takes us from slavery to uh, Mount Sinai, and then we'll take a break for Christmas at Advent. Now, 
it's likely that when I say Exodus, some of you are, are probably thinking, ugh, what in the world does Exodus have to do with my life right now? Right? Like this is like 4,000 years ago. I mean, given all that's going on in our world, in our community, and in our lives, is this the best you guys can come up with? Exodus? I get it. My answer is yes. <laughs> this is the best we have right now. Obviously, the context of Exodus is, is removed somewhat from our world today. But please listen to me. Exodus is a, a gritty and messy story of our God pursuing a people and making them his own. It's an epic story. It really is. That, that depicts the, the deep brokenness of humanity and the redeeming love of God, which brings freedom and glory to his people. For Jews, this story literally defines their very existence. It's that big a deal. He, the, the rescue itself made them God's people. For Christians, this is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is God's defining act of redemption. You, we really don't even, can't even understand terms like sin or salvation or redemption or a sacrificial lamb and those kind of things. You can't even understand those terms unless you understand what is happening in Exodus. For the Israelites, that meant physical freedom from slavery. For us, it's freedom from slavery to sin and death. For them, it culminates with a physical glory of God on Mount Sinai and ultimately the glory of God at the end of the book, filling the tabernacle. For us, we experience the glory of God in the presence of Jesus in our lives right now as we look forward with great anticipation to the visible glory of God, which we will see face to face. Exodus really is our story. So as we read, I, I pray that you would see spiritual realities of Exodus are, are what we need today to embrace this as our story, that, that this is the God who rescues us out of slavery and into his glorious presence. You see, the Exodus is not just a rescue out of something alone. It's a rescue from and a rescue to. So it's from slavery to glory, from bondage to freedom, from uh, master, harsh taskmasters, to God as their master and king. So let's get started. God at work in days of darkness. God at work in days of darkness. This is Exodus 1. Lesson number one, trust that God is working out his plan even in the darkest of days. Let me set the context for understanding this chapter. The opening paragraph of Exodus actually serves as a bridge between Genesis and Exodus. In fact, in the original Hebrew, Exodus begins with the word and. It literally says, and these are the names of, because it, it, it's, it, Genesis was the first epic tale of this saga, right, of God forming a people for himself. Now Exodus is the long-awaited sequel, right? You, you saw Top Gun. That was awesome many years ago. Now the sequel, it's really good. It's really good. All right? Exodus is that, is this incredible sequel to what God has been doing. Verses 1 to 5 is a summary of where Genesis literally ended. The 12 sons of Jacob and their families living in the land of Egypt because of a severe famine that swept through the region. And we know, if you remember the story of Genesis, in the providence of God, he raises up one of the sons of Jacob. His name is Joseph 
who's also the great-grandson of Abraham. And, and Joseph rises up to become the prince of Egypt, and he helps the nation to prepare for and endure this long famine. But now it says all of Joseph's family is in Egypt, and we learn later in Exodus that it's been hundreds of years, almost 400 years. And verse 7 tells us that the people of Israel were fruitful and bore many children at the time, and they spread. In other words, the Hebrew people had grown from this patriarchal family to this strong and numerous people. And then verse 6 tells us there's a kind of a transition point that all the sons of Jacob and all that generation died. The author is showing us that redemptive history is moving. It's shifting from this household centered on one family to a history that will now focus on an entire nation. And in spite of Joseph's death, the Lord was sustaining his people. They were literally, it says, multiplying greatly, just as the Lord commanded Adam and Eve in the very beginning in the creation mandate. And so now they're becoming this great nation, as the Lord promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, your, your descendants will be as many stars in the sky. God is at work being faithful to his people, but not all is well. Verse 8, the author quickly turns to show us how God's faithfulness can often be hard to see. In the midst of God's people multiplying, they're experiencing a season that is unfathomably dark. And the question arises as you begin to read verses 8 and following is, is God still being faithful to his people? Are days of darkness in our lives evidence against God's faithfulness? How will the people respond to unjust suffering do you see how relevant Exodus is to our lives? Let me read verses 8 to 10 again. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Egypt responds to Israel's growth by oppression. And so in an instant, Israel goes from prosperity, we're growing or multiplying, to persecution. What was once a land of opportunity now becomes a land literally of oppression. It says a new king arose over Egypt. Again, many years after Joseph, it's likely that this new pharaoh had heard of Joseph. He knew about what Joseph did, but what he did likely was he chose to ignore the vital contribution that Joseph had made to the nation of Egypt. This often happens in history. The further removed we are from a significant event or a significant person, the more people of that day are tempted to downplay or criticize that event or that person in order to fit the cultural narrative of the day. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? <laughs> this new pharaoh looks at the growing population of Israel, and you know what he sees? A threat. A clear and present danger. Can you see what is driving Pharaoh in this moment? 
Here's the king of the greatest nation on earth at the time. He had military superiority. I mean, he, he is literally the, the head guy. He is like the most important, most powerful man in the, in the world. And he sees this immigrant population growing rapidly within his borders with their own distinct cultural identity. And what does it produce in him? Fear. Like most dictators, this new pharaoh is insecure and paranoid. And much of what he does is driven by fear. In this instance, fear that Israel would become so great, he says, that they might join the enemies of Egypt and, and lead them in war and defeat Egypt. This is how it often works with migrants, with immigrants. They are initially welcomed into a new land, a new country, a new nation. But when they prosper and multiply, fear and resentment sets in. And, and then oppressive, me impressive, oppressive measures are imposed. Why? Why does this happen? But this isn't the only time in history. History repeats itself. Why does that happen? Because fear that they will outnumber the local people and change their way of life. Does that sound familiar? Racism is not a new sin, is it? It has been part of sinful humanity from the beginning. It's what drove Hitler to murder six million Jews. It's what led to Rwanda's genocide between the Tutsis and the Hutus. Let, let me ask you a question, Christian. Will we live in the same kind of fear of outsiders? Verse 11. Pharaoh responds to the threat by enslaving the Israelites and forcing them to build two major cities. It says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to inflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The word for oppress means to bring low, to beat down. It says the Egyptians treated the Israelites ruthlessly. In other words, the taskmasters dealt so harshly with the people of Israel physically, first of all, beating them, making their lives bitter with hard labor, working from sunup to sundown with no rest. And the taskmasters also sought to break the spirit of the people of Israel with their oppression, to leave them without hope. This is the heinous evil that is slavery. Pharaoh was hell-bent on destroying the people of Israel, and his first attempt was to ruthlessly crush them in, sla in slavery. And when that doesn't work, he devises another evil plan to wipe out Israel. He sa it says he orders the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, to have all the male babies killed. His strategy changes from slavery to slaughter. He's literally usurping God's authority over life and death that who lives? And he's claiming it, Pharaoh's claiming it as his own. I decide who lives and who dies. And he, and he decrees infanticide, the killing of babies. This is butchery in the worst way. And I will not go into graphic detail what it looks like to slaughter babies as they're coming out of the womb. But I must point out that just as Pharaoh pursued the evil of ethnic-driven slavery, of which we know all too well, now he pursues, pursues the killing of babies, of which we also know all too well. If you've been watching what is happening in our world today and you're thinking, man, this is a messed up world. I mean, people are really evil. We're living in a warped time in human history. I, I can't, I can't, I have to admit, yeah, you're right. But please don't think we're doing something new. 
Please don't think this is like, this is the worst it's ever been in history. Solomon was right. There is nothing new under the sun. Humanity has engaged in horrific evil from the beginning until now. So why kill only the baby boys? Well, biggest reason is they're the greater threat because if they grow up, they can become soldiers and potentially fight against Egypt. And so he tries this second plan of, of killing all the baby boys, asking the midwives to do that, commanding them to do that. And when that second plan of Pharaoh doesn't work, he issues a decree at the very end of this chapter, and it kind of leaves us ominously at the end of verse 22, that he says to all of his people, all the Egyptians, look, they're not doing it. You go find any Hebrew baby, and you just throw it into the Nile and kill it. All the Hebrew boys, we've got to get rid of them. They're done. And now he is sanctioning genocide. Look, you can't just read this and go, yep, got it. No. This should make your heart, your stomach turn. Enter into the story and feel the weight of all the sin, all the suffering, all the pain, all the, all the grieving, all the crying out. In the midst of such dark days, where is God? This chapter covers years and years of Israel's history, and God is hardly mentioned at all. Did you notice that? Only two times, and it's only, and it's only in relation to the midwives fearing God. Why is that? Why isn't God moving? Why isn't, why isn't talking about what, what God is doing? Here's why. Because the writer, Moses, is brilliantly capturing what it feels like from a human sense that when life gets messy, that when, 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 when the hits keep on coming, when the trials are overwhelming, God can feel very distant, can he? Like, where's God in all of this? And, and if we're really honest, sometimes he not only just feels distant, he feels absent. Where's God when, when the chains go on and the taskmasters start beating and killing the Hebrews? Where's God when the babies are dying? Where's God when your spouse walks out on you? Where's God when your child walks away from the faith? Where's God when you're set to retire and you get a devastating diagnosis? Where's God? You fill in the blank when your loved one is gone. When bad things happen, and I've been here, I've been there. When bad things happen, God seems distant, God seems absent. And the darker the days, the harder it gets to make sense of what God is doing. It doesn't feel like God is working out his plan. It feels like his plan is getting totally derailed. But here's why Exodus 1 is so important, so relevant to our lives. Even though it seems like God is silent, it seems like he is absent, he is working behind the scenes. As crazy as it sounds, he is bending even the worst situations toward his good plan. But often his working is hidden, meaning we can't understand it, we can't see it. And please hear me, just because we can't understand doesn't mean he's not doing anything. Look at what he's doing here in, the in just this text, let alone the big picture. Look at what he's doing here. And in no way am I minimizing the hellish experience of the Hebrews, but in the midst of their horrendous suffering, God is working out his plan. Pharaoh enslaves the Hebrews. 
puts them, deals with them ruthlessly, harshly. And then in verse 12, right in the middle of talking about Pharaoh's evil, it says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world, and he has decided he will wipe out the Hebrews from the face of the earth. And yet, do you see what is happening Everything he does backfires and accomplishes the exact opposite of what he wanted. In this evil, Pharaoh is unwittingly drawing the people of God closer together as a community with a shared identity. They were growing into a great nation in fulfillment of the covenant promise made to Abraham many years ago. And in verse 20, the order to have the babies killed by the, by the midwives leads to this incredible bravery by these midwives and a greater sense of solidarity as a people. And when he decrees all baby boys thrown into the Nile, we'll, we'll learn next week in chapter 2, that will lead to one particular baby being put in the Nile, but yet in a basket floating down the, the river, later to be adopted and trained by, by, by Pharaoh's own daughter, and ultimately will become the liberator of the Hebrew people. Of course, it was incredibly painful and devastating for the Israelites, their suffering nearly broke them. But just because they couldn't see and understand what God was doing, that doesn't mean he wasn't working. He was, in fact, in unseen but massively important ways, working for the good and the future of his people. Does it feel like God is absent from your life right now? Does it feel, that, at the very least, that he's, that he's distant you can't see it. Do you wonder why is God allowing so much sin and suffering to occur? Maybe you're thinking, man, if I was God, I could easily think of a better plan than this one. I am sympathetic to that. Oh, have I, oh how I have longed to not have suffered the ways that I have suffered. Oh, how I have longed to not have had the sinful struggles and to fight them the way I've had to in life. If, or you might be thinking, if only you didn't have this depression. If only you didn't deal with chronic pain. If only you didn't deal with strained family relationships. If only marriage wasn't so difficult. If only you didn't deal with that nagging feeling that you're not really making a difference. I'm sure the Israelites wondered many times why they would have to endure such such horrible suffering. And while I don't pretend to know why God has ordained whatever he has in your life or mine, what I do know is this, and I've said this before, that there are lessons learned in the darkness that cannot be learned anywhere else. There are lessons learned in the darkness that cannot be learned anywhere else. And if your response to me is, which I know some of you are thinking, well, then that's cruel. That's cruel. What God was doing to Israel, even if it led to other good things, is cruel. Well, that's the thing about God's plans. God has a dream for his people. He has a beautiful plan for his people. But until we know the end of the story, his plans look pretty ridiculous and sometimes even downright cruel. When we're in the midst of suffering, we can't possibly have the wisdom or insight into what God is doing. And we just need to admit that. Can I just ask you to humble yourself and admit, you probably don't know what God is up to. 
right? I have a six-year-old son, and he is so inquisitive, and he wants to know things, and I love that. And, and we talk about money. Well, how much does this cost, and how much does that cost? I mean, he doesn't know the difference between $5 and $5 million, right? We're passing a boat in Florida. How much is that boat? That's probably a million-dollar boat. Oh, cool. Can I have a pack of Pokemon cards? Okay, here's, sure. Right? Hey, he, he has no idea, right? He knows, he knows dollars, $5 for Pokemon, but he has no idea that like our family spends thousands of dollars every month just for us to live in our home. No idea. He just opens the fridge and he's like got a, a plethora of choices that he didn't pay for. <laughs> it is easy to lose sight. I mean, that means if my six-year-old cannot even fathom what it looks like to run a household, let alone a job or all those kind of things. And I don't expect him to. Why would we expect us to understand and know how to comprehend the things that that the God of all creation understands? It's easy to lose sight of the truth that God's sovereign plans are rooted in his redeeming love. Do you realize nothing can stop God's plans because nothing can stop God from showing you how much he loves you? We have a God who can turn the greatest tragedy into the greatest victory. Don't believe me? Go back into Genesis and read the book and read the story of Joseph. I mean, he I mean the he had the worst life. If there was anyone who could say, God is done with me, I'm a nobody, I'm useless, it would be Joseph. And God was literally getting him right to where he needed to be for him to save his family and save the nation, so that it wasn't just Genesis, the end, but Genesis, and these are the names of Jacob's sons, and get into Exodus. Or ask the people of Israel right here. Because in not too long from now. They will watch God perform wonders in Egypt for them to behold. They will walk through a parted Red Sea, rescued from slavery, and witness the glory of God at Sinai. No, Christian, your suffering is not evidence of God being against you. It's evidence that God will never stop working to draw you to himself. Look, God is not responsible for the evil and cruelty in this text or in your life. Sinful people are. That's on us. Let's not accuse God for the things that we need to own. But we do have a God who works in and through our messed up lives and our messed up world. He rules and overrules so that at the end of the day, evil does not have the final say. Do you hear me? I don't know what you're going through, but you need to hear this clearly. Evil will not have the final say. It doesn't have the final say for Israel, and it doesn't have the final say in your life. Trust that God is working out his plan even in the darkest of days. Lesson number two. Be encouraged. God really does use the weak to accomplish his plan. This is a really important lesson and it fits with how we see God working throughout the Bible. We saw it in Genesis. He doesn't choose the the greatest. He chooses the lowliest. He doesn't choose the firstborn. He chooses the secondborn. He doesn't choose the guy who's morally upright. For whatever reason, he chooses this, this utter failure in a guy like Jacob. God doesn't use those who are great or strong or brilliant. He often and most commonly uses the outsider, the weak, and the insignificant. It's God's MO. We see this here in verses 15 to 21. God uses these two midwives in an extraordinary way to save the lives of countless babies. 
And what's more, they're named. Did you catch that? Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, who, 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 who's the Pharaoh? What's his name? Oh, we don't have his name. Oh, is it an accident? Is it, everyone wants to know who this Pharaoh is, right? Who's the Pharaoh who died in the Nile? When he got, we want to know. We don't know because in the grand scheme of things, his name is unimportant. He's ultimately a nobody. But, the, but Shifra and Pua, these midwives, women were treated as low status in society and in, a, and in a foreign land, I mean, they were treated worse than cattle. I won't get into how they were treated, but they were treated so bad. And beyond that, their midwives, likely because they didn't have children of their own, which means they would have been considered utterly useless in society and even worse, cursed by God or the gods. And yet who ends up being the heroes, the heroines of this story? And not only that, read into chapter 2 next week. Who, who will be the heroes there? It's courageous women. It's Moses' mother. It's Moses' sister. It's Pharaoh's daughter who was likely a Gentile. It's these outsiders. It's these women who are cultural, gender, and social outsiders. I just love how these first few chapters of, of Exodus elevate and honor the role of women in the deliverance of God's people. Do you understand what God is teaching us? That God can use every single person here to accomplish his purposes. Some of you think, no, I'm a nobody. I'm not the most talented. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the most successful. And you might have all kinds of other excuses. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too this. I'm too that. Maybe some of you have even had people literally tell you, you're a nobody. You're a loser. You don't have what it takes. I've been there. I was young. I had people tell me, you will never be able to do this certain thing in your life. You are too short. Your voice is too crackly. On and on and on. And I believed it. If I could just say this to every one of you, you are not a nobody. You're a somebody. You're not a loser. God came to rescue you. God created you in his image. He's the greatest maker in the universe. He never makes any junk. And if you think, if you're dealing with that, if you're believing that, it's a lie from the very pit of hell. God uses these two midwives in monumental ways. They literally save a generation of Hebrew babies. And he honors them by giving us their names. We have no idea who this Pharaoh is, but for all, of, all time, we know and we celebrate these two women, Shifra and Pua. It doesn't matter what strikes you have against you. It doesn't matter where your story has taken you in the past. God really does love you. And if you, chose, if you choose to fear God, to trust God, his word over you, over, over your own words, or over the words of others, if you will receive his grace freely given through Jesus Christ, the rescuer, the ultimate hero, God can and will use you in ways that you can't even fathom. That's really good news for broken and messed up people like us, isn't it? I pray that not only would you see how much God values you and loves you, but that that would lead to, to you moving out with the same heart to care for, 
those without power and without privilege, those who are excluded, who are on the margins of society. May God's grace fill you and I with the same desire to show compassion and support to those who are vulnerable, those who have no voice, whether it's advocating for unborn babies or helping with those who are, who are, who are, who are poor or struggling economically or caring for those who have special needs, mental or, or physical handicaps, and society's like, yeah, let's push them out. Let's not deal with them. They're, they're, it's too complicated. It's too hard. Listen, Grace Baptist Church says, no, we want to deal with whatever's hard. We know it's messy, but this is a place for messy and hard people to be able to come and experience God's grace. Would you... I pray that we would continue to be a church that, that with compassion and love goes out and cares for the vulnerable. That's what it looks like to do great things. You may or may not be a CEO of something. You may or may not be a manager. You may or may not be recognized in the news or the newspaper. It doesn't matter. God can use you to do great things. Did these women face consequences because they feared God? Absolutely. Absolutely. They literally disobey Pharaoh's wicked decree. They rightly acknowledge, no, God is the Lord of life. He has that authority, not Pharaoh, not the government, not anybody else. And long before the Hippocratic Oath, these women refused to do any harm. And they would not kill innocent life. And they defied the most powerful man in the world. Don't miss the fact that it was civil disobedience of these two godly women that was the spark that ultimately led to freedom from slavery for God's people. And the text says that God honors them because of their bravery. And it says that God, verse 20, God dealt well with, them, with these midwives. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. They end up with families of their own. Who knows how, how God brought that about in their lives, but it was a beautiful gift from God to two women who probably felt like they were nobodies and God used them in a mighty way to remind them and to remind us, I don't make nobodies. How does this short story show us Christ? I think you need to step back a minute and start asking like, does this story sound familiar? A king a fearful and paranoid king decrees that all baby boys should be killed. A particular boy is, is rescued and grows up to become the savior of his people. God is at work in the darkest of days. God has always birthed deliverers out of the darkness of persecution. Listen, Moses will arise and deliver Israel from the hands of Egypt. He falters at every turn, Moses does, and he fails, and yet God still uses him. Many years later, another baby boy will be rescued, and his name will be Jesus, and he will arise and deliver us, not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery to sin and death. And yet this baby, this man, never falters, never fails, but he does experience all the weaknesses, all the limitations of being human. Here is the one with all power and authority, and he willingly goes to the cross. And just like the Hebrews, he experienced rejection and oppression to the greatest degree. He was ruthlessly beaten. And he experienced the ultimate day of darkness when he was suspended in the air for all to see in disgust and shame. 
That was the darkest day in history. Don't you see that Jesus endured the the greatest injustice ever? We killed the perfect Son of God, and Jesus endured the greatest suffering ever. He took our sin on himself. He bore all of God's just wrath against our sin. He was totally abandoned, so much so that he cries out what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was God being cruel to Jesus? Wasn't that unfair? Why didn't God stop it? He had the power. Why this God? And here's God's answer to that. If my son did not face the worst sin against him, and if he did not experience the worst suffering in him, then he would never be able to save anyone from their own sin and suffering. He would never be able to give you forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. I hope you see that God sovereignly ordained the cross in order to show you just how far he will go to rescue you. God loves you, and God loves bringing beauty out of ashes. God loves literally raising the dead figuratively, spiritually, and physically. So much so that he was willing to suffer and die for you. You know what that means now? It means he knows what you're going through. That he walks with you through the suffering. That Christianity is the only faith in the world that says that our God came down and suffered like us for us. And it means God is at work in days of darkness, using the sin and suffering in your life and in my life and in our lives corporately to shape us into the image of Christ now and to prepare us for glory to come. Sure, we would love more answers from God in our suffering. But let's face it, we wouldn't understand it even if he tried. You don't need answers, Christian. You need a person. You need the God who loves you. You need to be reminded that the gospel is good news because it proves once and for all that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. If you are not a Christian, this is the story of God rescuing and delivering, and this is your story. The Bible says we are are bound and enslaved to sin, and unless someone who's stronger than sin can rescue us out of sin, we will die in our sin and spend eternity away from God, pursuing the, the rebellion we said all along, and that will be absent of God, which is what hell is. And yet God, in his infinite mercy and wisdom, comes down, rescues us by taking our place, breaks the shackles off, and says, be free, receive my gift of salvation of eternal life and I break those shackles off and you you live as a free person both now and forever believe that today receive him today and Christian please remember unimaginable glory awaits you let that hope sink in and sustain you as you believe and trust that our God is at work in days of darkness. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We're not afraid to admit that. We need you so badly. It is hard for us to understand and and make sense of the things happening in our world. It's really hard to make sense of the things that happen in our 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 relationships, our workplaces, our homes, and in our own hearts. 
God, we are crying out to you. We, we even ask the question, why, why is it so complicated, Lord? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so messy? I thank you that we can come to you and ask those genuine questions and your response isn't a piece of paper with all the answers. I thank you that you knew we didn't need a cheat sheet. We need someone to take it our place. We need someone who knew all things, who had all wisdom and all power and all love to do the test for us, to go through all of it to the fullest degree so that now, so that now in Christ, Lord, we believe, we want to hold fast to the truth that even when we don't understand your ways, Lord, we will trust your heart because your heart, your love, was on fullest display. We can't question that. We know that. Fill us with this reality, with this truth. Remind us yet again that all our days belong to you. We can trust you and, and even be encouraged that you want to use us in your grand kingdom plan to pour your spirit into us, to pour your love into us, to go out into a world which thinks, that, which thinks that greatness will win it when reality weak will, weakness will win the day. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.